Father, I pray that you will just give John the right words. I know he's prepared and prepared over a long period of time, actually, to talk to us about your command, do not judge. But I pray you'll give him just the right words for this moment. You'll open the ears of those who need to hear this message, which is all of us. I pray that you'll bless him now in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I on? Thanks, friends. It's fine. We'll just go off kilter to all. Um, a few stories from when I was young. Uh, well, young. I mean younger. Yeah, th thanks, Mike. Uh, <laughs> uh, and funnily enough, uh, there's someone in the room, my mum, who can actually fact-check this, uh, so I promise you I was this silly. Um, so growing up in the household that I did, uh, I was really into reading. And when I say really into reading, I mean really into reading. I was the sort of kid who would sit uh, like at the top of the stairs, legs dangling down the stairs to be a trip hazard, reading history encyclopedias for hours. I was that kid. Um, yes, I know. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, a few times in my life, uh, I've been caught out by this one particular issue that I think people who read a bunch will hopefully understand. So the issue is, when you read words but never hear them out loud, the way you would pronounce the word is not the way the word is pronounced. <laughs> there have been a few key moments in my life when this has tripped me up. Uh, one of them, I don't know how old I was, I want to say six maybe younger, um, but I was reading and playing some like video games about the ancient Mayan culture uh, and the Spanish army who went over there and did awful things. Uh, and in doing this, I came to my mum one day and went, Mum, I've just been learning about the conquistadors. Now, those of you in the room know that that's not the way the word's meant to be pronounced. Uh, and so my mum looked at me and was like, John, that's gibberish, what do you mean? <laughs> she was far kinder. Um, but uh, afterwards, she said, oh, John, do you mean the conquistadors? And I was dumbfounded. Six-year-old John could not understand that he'd misread and misunderstood a word. It would just like blew my mind that I was wrong. Now, uh, to a more and slightly more embarrassing um, recent example, a couple months ago, I was hanging out with Tom and Shani, um, and we were just walking down the street, uh, and we, someone said the word misled. And like a lightning bolt, it struck me that every time I'd read the word misled in a novel, a book, a treatise, I'd read it as mizzled. <laughs> it, meant, it, it meant the exact same thing as misled. It fit perfectly in where misled would be. But I just never put two and two together and realized that M-I-S-L-E-D spells misled and not mizzled. Um, Oh, golly, am I silly sometimes. <laughs> so, the reality is, I'm just going to take a, a sip of water. Uh, in both of these situations, it took someone correcting my thinking on these words to understand how to properly say uh, or how to properly engage with the word. If they hadn't, I'd probably still be saying mizzled and, con and conquistator uh, to this day. Although I would hope that somebody would correct me by the end of this sermon if I was saying those words. Lucy's shaking her head. She would leave me in the dark. Thank you. Uh, 
This is equally true for the passage I've been asked to engage with today. I don't know about you, but I've heard this passage used so many times in so many contexts. Besides John 3.16, John 10.10, and Jesus wept, I reckon this is probably one of the verses most commonly memorized by Christians. And, interestingly enough, it's also one of the verses I hear most commonly from the mouths of atheists. In apologetics videos on YouTube, on TV, or anywhere else for that matter where conversations turn to more spiritual things. This verse, judge not lest ye be judged, tends to be used as either an aggressive tool to defend one's behavior um, by atheists or Christians of a certain perspective, saying things like, your book slash the Bible says not to judge, so don't judge me, you can't judge me, like you can't challenge my behavior, or it's used as an excuse to avoid challenging another Christian's sinful behavior. Oh, you know, I know that Trevor is trapped in his sin, but the Bible says not to judge, so I'm just gonna leave him to it. I don't have the right to tell him what to do. The truth is, both of these interpretations take this verse completely out of its context and twist it to fit the user's purposes. Similarly to when Satan took scripture and twisted it to suit his purposes in the desert when he was tempting Jesus. Rather than interpreting it in the light of the context in which it was written. So this begs the question, in its proper context, what is Jesus actually saying to us in this passage? We know that this was said during the Sermon of the Mount, so what was Jesus saying to his disciples and to the people who were listening at the time? So I'm gonna quickly read the passage again and then dive right into it. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, you too will be measured. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces. My view is that when Jesus is, what Jesus is saying in this passage is far more encouraging and affirming than him giving us a free get-out-of-jail-free card. He is instead giving us some very practical advice, somewhat framed in the case of a joke, uh, to, get, to help us understand the process we ought to go through uh, when or if passing judgment on another's behavior. My suggestion is that there are three key points to be taken from this passage, which if we engage with them in sequence, should help inform us as to how we should go about judging the behavior of others, as well as when and how we should go about approaching them with correction. So, point one. We need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, ladies and gents. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of the people in the room today, myself included, subconsciously or consciously, are prone to making snap judgments. We see someone do something, or hear that someone said something or has done something, uh, and immediately begin to think, well, I wouldn't do it that way, or that's such an ineffective way of doing that, or how does that make their wife feel, 
Or does that person know what they're doing is sinful? What Jesus seems to be saying, and can I have the passage up on the wall? Is that okay? Sorry, I didn't ask for that previously. Uh, Particularly in verses two to five, um, is hold up before you go charging off over to the person in question and start telling them what they are doing wrong, consider yourself and your own actions first. The key theme at the center of this little illustration that Jesus shares of a person with a speck in their eye and another with a plank is that Jesus wants us to be people of integrity rather than people of hypocrisy. You see, if we read verse one and two just together, it seems very clear that the do not judge lest you be judged for to, you will be judged by the measure that you, used, that you used to judge others Sorry, that was a lot of words very quickly. I apologize. Seems far more to me like a warning for us to understand the context we're in than a universal command. It's saying, weigh up what you're about to do. Consider yourself. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's practically work through what I actually really do believe is quite a jokey example that Jesus gives us. Imagine for a moment that you have a speck of sawdust in your eye. It's irritating, it's itchy, and you want it gone. Now, someone comes up to you with an entire plank in their eye, right? An entire plank. You can only imagine how sore their eye is and all that splintery wood in their eye socket. They tell you that they're really good at removing specks from their own eye. They tell you, that they, and potentially even offer to try to help you remove the speck from your eye because their eyes are completely clear and they fully understand what they're doing. Are you going to believe them? Like, if I have a tiny speck of wood in my eye and they have a giant honking plank in theirs, I'm not going to take their advice. It doesn't matter how wise they are. Now, perhaps that's pride in me. But also, I think this is what Jesus is beginning to get at. It's that if we're coming from a place of hypocrisy when challenging someone, people can smell it from a mile away. You see, when we try to correct others whilst living in hypocrisy, the sting of the correction is completely neutralized. If you say to someone, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that, but then you yourself go and do the thing that you're telling them not to do, and even perhaps do it worse than they're doing it, Why on earth should that person listen to you when you're trying to correct them? You're giving them an excuse not to listen, both consciously and subconsciously. Like, they hear that, and it's like, well, what you're saying, you don't believe, so why should I believe it? On the other hand, if our actions and our words actually match up with each other, if we are genuinely working to remove each speck that arrives in our eyes as they arrive, let alone the planks, then we have a much better starting point to work from when approaching someone else who has a speck too. This is what Jesus is telling the reader, or the listener when he first said this, to consider, I believe. This is what it means to live with integrity. To live a life where we say what the Bible tells us is right and true, and we act in ways that that match up with what we're saying. If we are going to judge someone else's actions and attempt to come alongside them to correct them, this passage tells us that we better make sure that our eye is speck-free first. Point two, having ensured that we've checked ourselves and showing us the sort of lifestyle that we should be living if we have to judge other people's behavior righteously, Jesus, secondly, challenges us to aspire to actually live lives of integrity, to actually do the thing. 
in the passage, Jesus does not say, well, you know, if you could be bothered to remove the plank from your own eye, that would be swell. But if not, that's cool, you'll just keep giving people splinters, but that's fine. Like, he says, no, you hypocrite. Remove the plank from your own eye so you might see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is a, a command. This is not a suggestion. He challenges us not to become complacent and blindly accepting of the way we lead our own lives, but to live lives with eyes wide open, speck-free, actively seeking for our actions and words to match up with the commands we find in Scripture. And these are commands that now, as a family, we've been exploring for quite some time together. I know this might come across as somewhat controversial, but it is actually part of our calling as Christians to humbly point out to both non-Christian and Christian alike where they are stumbling over sin and invite them to return to Jesus' fold for the first time or once again. And to do this, we need to be living lives that add to the credibility of what is the most wonderful message rather than detract from it. We need to not become comfortable living with our planks, but become useful to others by overcoming the sin in our own lives, killing it rather than letting it kill us, so that we might aid them in dealing with theirs. And you know what is so cool? In the section after this unit in Scripture, in verses 7 to 12, uh, Jesus tells us that those who ask will receive. Those who seek will find. And those who knock, the door will be opened to. If overcoming the trials and troubles in your own life feels impossible, I have genuine good news for you. If you ask Jesus to help, he will. If you seek him and bring all of your concerns and worries to him, not only will you find him, but he will help you shoulder the burden for his yoke is light. If you want to live a life of integrity, but think that that sounds too hard, well, I think you're probably in good company. But Jesus is very much available to provide help and strength. We hear an adage all the time of, Jesus only gives you so much that you can bear. I actually don't see that in Scripture. What I see is that Jesus challenges us to go far beyond our own boundaries and tells us to meet him there. It's not a case of, oh, I'll just give this person just enough that like, you know, they'll, feel, they'll feel good about themselves. No, Jesus commands us to step far beyond where we're comfortable, to go out into the, 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 to pioneer new things, to meet new people, to reach new people, to, to leave our comfort zone and meet him there. Because that's where he is. So right at the end of this little unit that we've been going through, Jesus changes tack a little from being rather jovial, making jokes about specks and planks and woodwork. I mean, he was a carpenter after all, he knew quite a lot about it. To uttering some rather serious words of warning in regards to discernment. Jesus tells us not to give to dogs what is sacred and to not throw our pearls to pigs, for if we do, they may trample them under feet and then turn and tear us to pieces also. Perhaps pigs were a lot more violent in Jesus' day. <laughs> I haven't met many pigs in my personal life, so perhaps they are just violent creatures. I don't know. Um, my suggestion is that this is very much an allegory for us to engage with. Although, truth be told, I genuinely wouldn't recommend throwing your pearls, necklaces, or earrings into pig pens anyways. First of all, they're messy, uh, and second of all, I don't think you'd find them again. You see, in context, 
I would argue that Jesus is telling us to consider how our challenge is going to be received by the person that we're going to. Do we have the kind of relationship with said person where they can actually hear what we're going to say? Has the person just finished preaching, teaching, leading worship, praying for someone they care deeply about, receiving prayer, um, and as such is already in a spiritually vulnerable position? Are they surrounded by their friends at this moment? Meaning if you run over there and say, hey, you're living in sin, they're going to be super embarrassed and immediately become defensive. Has there just been a bereavement in the family? Meaning that they're already close to their emotional tipping point. Is their child currently screaming from the top of the organ when nobody knows how they got up there, but they're there? Uh, <laughs> and as such, they're kind of distracted at this moment. Can you see what I'm getting at here? Jesus wants us to be conscious of where the person who we can see is, is struggling and is trapped in sin, where they're at, and to approach correcting them from a place of love and mercy, seeking to find or create a good moment to do so, rather than bluntly charging in, all guns blazing, regardless of the context. Later on, Jesus, again talking to his disciples in Matthew 18, he lays this out very plainly, saying that if your fellow believer sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, then you've won them over. Jesus and Paul, uh, in his letters later on, then both continue to expand this pattern, saying that if they refuse correction from you, then you should bring another witness, a friend, somebody who you trust, and go to them again and say, we're still seeing the same behavior. If that doesn't work, you then bring it to the eldership. And if that doesn't work, and hopefully we never get to this point as a family, you then bring it to the entire church family. We need to be discerning the context that we find ourselves in and the context that we find the other person to be in. Otherwise, the words we use, regardless of how loving we think they are, will be received just as pearls to pigs. The person will be hurt, the person will probably feel very defensive, they'll get angry, and they might try and attack you. I'm kidding. Um, but, but that is the picture that Jesus paints. Um, so friends, this is not something that goes right every time. Sometimes we mess it up, people get hurt, time is wasted, and what could have been precious pearls end up being trampled into the muck. But that should not discourage us from seeking to grow in wisdom and compassion so that we might better know when and how to point our family and friends to Jesus once again. I'm a firm believer in the idea that it's better to try than it is not to. It's better to try to see somebody corrected than to let them go on in sin. It's better to try preaching the gospel and maybe doing a little bit haphazardly than it is to see that person go by who, if what Philippians tells us, their destiny is not something that we'd want, we're just watching them go by and never telling them about it. Attempted action, in my view, is always better than inaction. Though perhaps that's something to be debated. Spiritual disciplines work a lot like physical muscles, in my experience. The more you work them, the more you use them, the easier it is to do it. And if we never engage in it, if, we, if you never work out a muscle once, it's never going to get strong. So my encouragement is, let's try. So to conclude, let's get excited and passionate about being people of integrity. Let's say what we mean, say what we believe, and act accordingly. No more hypocrisy. Let's get, let's get away from that. Let's get on with this. Jesus has given us a task. Let's do it. 
Let's not take single verses out of context and use them to defend uh, our behaviors, use them to like, block off the things that we're not comfortable doing by trying to make up excuses for it when Jesus very clearly doesn't give us that opportunity. Instead, let's read scripture deeply. Let's understand what Jesus meant by what he said. Let's understand what the prophets meant by what they said and shape our lives according to what it says in the word. Let's love one another to point each other back to Jesus when we see each other drifting away rather than looking on and ignoring it. May I pray? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Uh, you tell us that it's like a sword splitting between bone and marrow, uh, that when we listen to you and engage with what you say, you challenge us. Um, so Father, I pray that you encourage us to become, or to continue to be, or to grow in uh, being people of integrity that you point out to us in our lives where we're living hypocritically and challenge us in that. That as we listen to your word and engage with what you say and with what you've commanded us to do, we don't make up excuses in our own minds for why we shouldn't have to actually do that, but we get on with the task you've laid ahead of us. Uh, to paraphrase the, word in Hebrew, the words in Hebrews, help us to run the race that you've set ahead of us well. Help us to not keep trying to find turn-offs and shortcuts but to run the race that you've set. Father, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for the compassion that you've shown each of us. And Lord, I pray that you help us to show that to those that we encounter each and every day. Amen.